when I was dieting, you know, I was literally trying to make my body go away. And why would I have wanted to dwell in it when I wanted it to go away? I had to stop that project of shrinking and refining and changing before I was willing to just go sit in that space. It's like, if your entire house is under renovation, how are you going to sit in there? Welcome back to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. This week is part two of my episode with Savala. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you might want to go back for some context about what we're going to be talking about. But this part of the conversation, part two, hour two, is where it really comes alive. If you listen to this show, it's long. Sometimes I break it up in two parts, sometimes I don't. But I think after about 45 minutes, we can forget we're recording and we really get to a place where we're just people having a conversation. We get a little bit looser. And in part one of our conversation, we cover Sabala's writing process. We start to dig into the first essay in her new book, which is about relationships, dating white guys while me. And through our conversation, we cover why talking specifically allows us to relate. We talk about dating and connection and intimacy and race and feeling on the outside and so much more. I love Savala so much. You might remember that we met in 2019 during our episode of the podcast. We've kept in touch over these last couple of years and she's one of my favorite people to have a conversation with, which is why this is long and broken up into two parts. She's also one of the most impressive people I know. She's a writer, a teacher, a mom, a social justice attorney, and her new book of essays, Don't Let It Get You Down, has made a tremendous impact on me, which we discuss at length in this episode and part one of this episode. So I'll have us get into it and... Thank you so much for being here. If you want to know more about me and my work, you can stick around until the end. I'm relaunching my four-month creative membership that was previously called Creative Underdogs and I recently renamed to be called In Process, but it starts this month. And if you want to learn more about that, the link's in the show notes and I'll talk to you at the end. I'm so curious, like you, you have this footnote at one point in that essay, I think it is also about Blake where he says, Hey darling. And you say, this is how you remember it, which, you know, I guess is all of memoir, you know, it's, it's a perspective and it's memory. Can you talk about memory and your relationship to writing? You were mentioning that you're pretty good at recalling these things. I'm curious why that specifically got a footnote and, and how it felt for you, the process of writing this and bringing up these memories, conjuring them. Yeah. So there, uh, that episode involves my memory, you know, as you say of him walking by my office and, you know, we worked together. Uh, so him walking by my office and winking and saying, Hey darling, you know, and I kind of, uh, I don't know, a way that was friendly, but, you know, maybe had a little sprinkle of flirtation on it. And 
me having this like insanely strong physical reaction that, you know, I think now was probably adrenaline and I should have heated it. Instead, I, I sort of understood that reaction to maybe be a sign, you know, of how well suited we were for each other. But in any event, to get to your point, it is what I remember, but I also think, you know, Blake was someone who, you know, he was pretty comfortable in kind of a corporate environment and had, I mean, he can be a real goofball outside of it, but he had a pretty staid persona like in the office. And so for whatever reason, as you know, as I was writing that part of it, and actually this actually came up, I believe in the copy editing phase, not the writing phase. I just, you know, felt that little squiggle in the back of my mind of like, it, this just doesn't like, it's what I remember, but like, really, would he really have walked by and said, mm-hmm. Hey darling, like, yeah, my office was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Nobody would have seen or heard him. And like, we were in each other's office all the time and sometimes flirtatious, you know, like, but in the hallway, we have said that, you know, I just, it wouldn't be accurate to say that I doubt my own recollection of it, but it was just an area where I just felt like, I don't know, especially aware that he might remember it really differently or that it's possible that my memory is not a hundred percent accurate. I mean, you have to just concede that in life and in a memoir, you know, mm-hmm. and do your best to be as accurate as you possibly can be. But one of the things that I did in this book was just point out, like, I think there's two or three places where either I know for sure someone else remembers something differently or, you know, I'm especially aware that like, maybe my memory is like not a hundred, a hundred percent right here because something about it seems out of character for the person, but it's still what I remember, you know? So we added that footnote, but you know, I remember it incredibly clearly in part because I had this like massive physical response that I will never, ever forget. And I wanted you know, Kelsey Miller, I don't know if you know her, but she's, yeah, a, she's, a she's on the podcast a couple of times. Yeah. She has been on the podcast, of course. So she wrote big girl and she wrote a book about friends. The title is escaping me, but she I gave me it's some called advice. I'll be there for you. I'll be there for you. The one about friends. Yes. Thank you for remembering that. She gave me some advice about writing memoir. And the advice was basically like to really consider your motivation when you are talking about someone else. And, you know, I took that to mean two things. Like one, be very wary if I am at the back of my mind, I know that I'm trying to grind an ax with how I'm describing someone or talking about them or what episode I'm choosing to recount, you know, like if I'm using the book as a way to kind of have my day in court, you know, to interrogate oh, them really. yeah. and like not do it, you know, is how I interpreted that. But the other way that I took that, you know, idea of considering your motivation when you're writing about other people is to just try to be as like, you know, I don't want it to sound sappy, but like thoughtful about other people. None of these dudes asked me to write about them. You know, I just felt like I wanted to be not obsequious, you know, but kind, right? Be honest, but also, I don't know kind enough that it didn't feel like I was trying to drag them or misrepresent their character. And this is not just for the guys in this essay, but, you know, for the other people in the book, 
you know, other friends or former employers or family members, you know, I write about other people quite a bit. Yeah. And I don't, you know, so, so those are sort of two of my sort of guiding principles. And at the end of the day, it just felt like the right thing to do to drop that little footnote in there. It was cool. It made me trust you as a, as a narrator so much more of like, you know, and, and you can tell you considered your motivation when writing about people because you could tell it was true, but told with such gentleness that it felt really correct and honest. Well, thank you. I mean, I have to concede that like, I mean, I don't think Blake would ever write an essay about me because I, you know, I just don't, <laughs> I don't see that happening for a number of reasons. But if he did, you know, I don't know. His perspective might be like, wow, this girl just was obsessed with me and like, I couldn't get her off my back. I tried to be nice, but yeah. like also be clear that I wasn't interested. You know, like human beings have different perspectives and right. I don't think it serves anybody to be like too convinced of your own unassailable assessment of a situation. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely tried to be like defiant where necessary, but also aware that this is my perspective and memory, as you say, you know, it's like a collage or it's like a watercolor or something. Memory is a mystery and we know that it's not perfect. You know, like I just read this article about eyewitness identifications and how flawed they are and memory is not perfect, but the commitment I just made to myself was to be as accurate as I could be and to get my mom uses this phrase like close to the bone, like to cut as close to the bone as I possibly could, both with sort of like factual accuracy, obviously, but with emotional accuracy too. And, uh, you know, if somebody disputes something or remembers it differently, like that's, that's okay. That's their prerogative. That's the human condition. Mm, Yeah. I feel like, you know, that consider your motivation when writing about other people, Thank you so much. That just was a watershed moment for me because I feel like a lot of essays that I've written, I need to go back through that lens for not necessarily that I was in like a revenge sort of a way, but just in a like, huh, I wonder what they'd think of that. Too concerned with the subjects, Mm, you know, than just like telling I should be less concerned with the subjects and more concerned with maybe the audience or at least I'm not sure honesty, but that's a really good lens to look through. Thank Kelsey. Yeah. It was, it's not my concept. You know, I don't know if she maybe got it from somewhere else, but I, I got it from her and I think it cuts both ways. Like I don't, I don't think that the uh, takeaway from that advice is that you have to be mild and thoughtful and conscientious and polite. Sometimes your motivation is to be, is to protect someone when that's actually not what the piece needs to do, you know, right, right, like right. when your instinct to protect them is misplaced or misguided. So I don't think, I don't think it means never be tough or rough or defiant or whatever. I just think it means um, be very clear with yourself and like nail your integrity to every sentence as best you can when you're writing about other people whether that means to be a little tougher or softer or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and then just seeing what your, maybe what your motivation is period. Cause I think I I've written a, a couple essays. Actually, Kelsey is an amazing editor and she used to have this column for refinery 29 called 
the anti-diet project and, mm-hmm. and I got to publish an essay in it and she edited me and it was like, truly like people find that essay all the time. And it's about anorexia and nostalgia. And anyway, after right. that, you know, I was writing more essays and, and, and more recently, I think when I write about, you know, things like an eating disorder or just a relationship or whatever, I think I'm just going to really check myself more often of like, what is it that I'm trying? Like, of course, when that essay came out, like I did get a lot of dopamine from the empathy and the like people relating. And I think that's all good. And and that essay really wasn't about other people at all. It was like really about me. <laughs> but I it's think- It's a beautiful in, essay. Oh, thank you. But I think when I've been trying to write about more things that involve other people, there is a part of me that's kind of, I I used to do this when I taught yoga where I would like be teaching a posture, a sequence or something. And if someone I knew, I taught when I was in college, if like a pal came to my class or someone I had a crush on, like suddenly I was like, what do they think of that? What do they think of that? And I'm not really Mm -hmm. considering the whole group. I was just like looking at them and I'm thinking of like an essay in particular that I wrote and I'm wondering like, huh, was there a part of me that thought that a person would read this and be like, well, that's how you felt. Okay. Or like, wow, now I see you differently. Now that that was in the New York times, you know? (laughs) Seriously. Right. I mean, you, it's a fine line and I, I'm wary of opining on this. Like I'm some kind of expert. Like I, you know, it's not like I'm a master memoirist who's on their 10th memoir or something, but it is a fine line between like, maybe it's not a fine line, but there's tension between your right to tell your own story and the fact that your story is going to involve other people and they may not want it told, you know? Yeah. There were a few places in the book with my friends and family where I checked, like, are you okay with this? And there was one thing that my mom, you know, she, it didn't sit right with her and I, I took it out because it didn't, lessen the piece and it didn't sit right with her and the piece didn't need it. It was just sort of a detail or like a flourish, you know, that felt true to me, but that she, it didn't sit well with her and she's my mom and it was okay to take it out. So I did. So I guess that's another, that's another thing about memory is like, I don't know, another way in which your own memory is not supreme necessarily. Like it's not the only consideration because other people are not they are not choosing to be written about. Yeah, exactly. And and you have to decide, like, is it worth me, you know, like writing about this and, and the, you chose the relationship, which I think is really wise. And sometimes I even feel that way, not even in, in writing, but in, I tend to talk about things again and again and again. And I have a lot, I have a lot of friends that I feel very close with and I'll share what's going on with myself (laughs) with them and listen to what's going on with them to connect as we do. And the more I tell something, the more I'm like, what even happened? Because I'm like, I know the beat so well, but I remember, I start to remember my retelling of the scenario more than the scenario itself. And that creates distance from like what was actually there. And especially feels off if like, you know, the other person involved isn't retelling it and isn't even thinking about it. Like me retelling it a lot is now making it feel bigger in my mind. And there's a, that can be a bit discombobulating, I think. 
Yeah, bigger and like in a strange way, smaller because it loses some of its freshness. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like it looms larger, but it, there's a way that it can become flatter at the same time because it becomes like a bit, you know? Exactly. Well, I'm thinking about me, not you, Katie. I'm not saying you're just <laughs> telling bits about your life. No, but, no, it's so know. true. And I think we're kind of similar. Like the way I, like I had a date recently and like the friends and the group, like call him bug guy. And then now it's like, okay, well now he's like a character and I'm like, oh my God, this is like not okay because I am now thinking of the beats of that night and the beats of like and that's it part of it is fine but part of it is like maybe I don't know the solution here it's like maybe I shouldn't tell my friends about something that I want to tell my friends about because I get like a lot of connection based on doing that but if you keep doing it I don't know I don't know the the answer there someone who like us journals and and processes verbally and with others, it's kind of like, I don't know where that, where I, I keep saying in my journal recently, where is the truth? Find the truth, find the truth. You know, even if you're just doing it for yourself, I think that's important and, and definitely important in memoir, like you were saying for the specificity and just for the honesty, it can be felt. Well, I don't know the solution to that. I mean, I do it too, especially around things I'm excited about, Yeah, you know, I don't know the solution except to just be aware of it. Like self-awareness is awareness is the solution that is viable for most of my problems. <laughs> like it's the one that I can actually employ, you know, Yeah, it's just having a little more awareness about it rather than trying to like overhaul or eliminate. But I don't know. I'm too tired to overhaul and eliminate <laughs> right yeah. now. Awareness is that is the hill that I can climb most of yeah. the time now. Yeah. That's well said. Me too. Well, I've been reading also this book that my friend Drake gave me, and it talks a lot about, it's like a self-help book, (laughs) spiritual book. And it talks a lot about resentment and forgiveness and like holding on to things. And it's called The Lotus and the Lily. Okay. And it's like one of those ones that I'm like kind of always reading, you know, (laughs) like I'll kind of flip through it. and Yeah. And you talk about in the, in the book, later about holding things in your body. And I'm curious where you are with that and this process, because to me, there's so many things that are so, we're, we're so intense to read and, and, and unforgivable and, you know, and, and small things that you went through, like there's a scene in a coffee shop and there's a scene on the a playground and, you know, everything that happened to you, especially that like really hit me hard in your pregnancy with Gemma mm-hmm. that you go into. And, and that chapter is so indicative of our medical system and the intense bigotry and like just, just how challenging that, that was for you. And I'm, I'm so sorry that that, that happened. I'm so glad you're okay. And also writing about that, I am glad it exists in this text. But, you know, later in the book, you you talk about how things get held in our bodies. And so I'm curious where you are with that. And, and did writing this help you feel more free? Was it more painful? Is having it out in the world helping? I, I'd love to check in on that. I don't think that I can prevent things from getting deposited in my body, whether that's because it's how human beings operate or just how I operate. 
you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I know that that happens with me. And one of the ways that I know something requires my attention is because I will feel it in my body. If, you know, if that makes any sense, when I start to feel physically tense or shut off from a certain part of my body, it's, it's just a signal that I, there's something I'm not dealing with. And, you know, usually I don't have to scratch too far below the surface to know what it is because we kind of always know what the things are that we're not dealing with, even when they're in the disappear box. Right. So for now, my uh, MO is to accept that things land in my body sometimes and to try to sort of take advantage of that by heeding the signals my body gives me and realizing that I have, I've got a little bit of work to do emotionally on something. If my body is starting to act wonky, you know, I do realize like the, the more efficient or better thing would be to sort of prevent the lodging of things in my body at all. But I don't know, it's been a rough 18 months. Like that's not where I'm at. You know, I physically move a lot because I think that's partially prevents like deep lodging for me, you know, like breaking a sweat helps things from like embedding in me physically. I'm just like, I'm for C plus work right now. You know, <laughs> I just, I can't, I, I don't have what it takes to ace everything. Well, um, you aced after, a book. So I think that's I a aced pretty a book. Yeah. I mean, that accomplishment. <laughs> I mean, I like harm reduction, you know, yes. that's fine for me right now. We so, love harm reduction. <laughs> harm reduction is great. And I approach many things in my life that way. The thing is, writing this book required me to become emotionally intimate with my body. You know, I already am. But when you're writing 17 or 12 essays, rather, that are all to some extent about your body. You can't do that unless you're willing to like sink into your body and kind of be at home there. Mm -hmm. So I think it's less that the process of writing the book was physically liberating and more that the process of giving up dieting was physically and emotionally and mentally liberating and allowed me to write the book Mm. because when I was dieting, you know, I was literally trying to make my body go away. And why would I have wanted to dwell in it when I wanted it to go away? You know what I mean? Like I had to stop that project of shrinking and refining and changing before I was willing to just go sit in that space. It's like, if your entire house is under renovation, how are you going to sit in there? (laughs) Right. You have to stay somewhere else when your whole house is being renovated. So that is like that metaphor is incredible. I'm just taking it. That was good. That was good. I agree. So (laughs) like stopping the renovation project allowed me to go and like sit in the rooms of my body for three years and write the book. So I think it, you know, this sort of liberation in some ways was before the book for me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That, and I think people can hear more about, you know, that was the first thing we connected on. I guess we didn't even like touch on that today, but I think we 
spoke pretty heavily about that in our first episode. Yeah, we did. And that really, you know, I guess I wasn't surprised because I, I really like you and connect with you and, and just like really love you as a person. And, and so I wasn't surprised that I would love your writing and, and connect in different ways. But like we had a lot of connection through the way we felt again, very different bodies, very different experiences, very similar feelings, you know, yeah. and yep. that was really well said. That's a like amazing analogy. Did you just come up with that on the spot or how did you I even did? I did. Like, and I'm really... actually like, kind of dwelling in it now. Cause like, yeah, they're, they're so true. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say a good interview should feel like therapy. So that write that down. Oh, that's, yeah. like, a creative down. That could be a whole essay actually. Actually um, good. Really, really good. Yeah, that that was really really spot on. Okay, gosh, I have so much more I want to ask you. You're you're going to have to come come back. I guess the one last thing about your writing process that I'm just so curious about. How did you break it down to write it? Like, you know, writing a book is such a massive project. Writing a book of essays, especially a memoir, like did you know the topics? Did you just say, I mean, I know you, you mentioned you wrote a book proposal. Like, did you do a little bit each day? Like, I would just love to know a little bit more granularly about how you broke it down and, and any advice that you would have for someone who would love to eventually write a a book of essays or to, you know, just write essays and publish essays in general. Yeah. I'm happy to do a little nuts and bolting because I certainly had no clue what I was in for and like how to do it. I was very lucky indeed to have an agent because he is an expert and he was able to guide me through the proposal process and ultimately sell the book. I mean, I think the proposal included three writing samples, each of which made it into the book. One was pretty much untouched, but the other two were worked on. Maybe it was four essays, three or four were in the proposal, along with like a series of bullet points about what I thought my other essays would be. Not because I was going to be nailed to them, but to give the prospective editors a taste of like what the whole thing might look like, you know? So by the book proposal time, I had sketched out what I thought all of the essays would be loosely, you know? And when I say sketched out, I mean, I believe one of the bullet points was like, one of the essays will be about how my father died and my grief and the role that I think race may have played and how he died, right? Very kind of high level. That bullet point could create a thousand different essays. So pretty high level. And then I used, you know, what I had put in the proposal as a guide to start writing. You know, like I said, I was going to write an essay about my dad. You know, I now have to take that bullet point and see like which of the thousand pathways I'm going to go go down. So just started writing. I think my first draft included three or four essays that did not make the final cut. And so I had to sort of replace them. So the bullet points were not ultimately the table of contents, but were sort of a guide. And once we had like, you know, eight essays nailed down, I worked with my editor and again, my agent, I feel like I mentioned him a thousand times, but he's a hands-on agent. 
I worked with them to sort of try and discern like what's missing. Like, oh, you know, you haven't really talked about motherhood. You haven't really talked about X, Y, Z. So it was a lot of like trial and error. I don't know when Joan Didion or Danny Shapiro sits, or like, you know, Tracy K. Smith, when they sit down to write their memoir, like maybe it's a lot more smooth and sort of tidy from the start. But mine was trial and error. There were essays that didn't make it in the essay about my father totally different. Like what ended up in the book is unrecognizable from what I handed in on my first draft. So process wise, you just have to do the work. Like there's just no way around it. You just have to put your butt in the chair and write. And I'm lucky that I really enjoy writing. The downside of that is that, you know, I came into this book kind of relying too heavily on the fact that I enjoyed writing to get me through it. And a little weak on the like discipline and habit side. So since then, and like more recently, I am trying to build more discipline and habits around doing this thing that I love so that I will do it even when I don't feel like doing it. You know, like I also love chocolate. That's not (laughs) the only thing I ever want to eat. Yeah. Does that kind of answer some of the process questions? Yeah, it does. It does. I just wrote this little zine that it's it's like free on my website but it's like I called it the creative combination because I feel like for me I need such a combination of conditions to be correct for me to be able to not even be creative necessarily or right in my case but to it's presence essentially but to even like have the ability to be productive or like get through emails or to do a task I don't want to do. Like there's so much caught up in there for me. And, you know, part of it might just be like ADD or like, you know, having a lot of like distractions, but, you know, I think it's just like creating the conditions. And then, so there's more likelihood that you'll want to sit down and write, you know? Absolutely. For me, you know, I will abuse that system, Katie. (laughs) Like, I'll be like, it's only 68 degrees, not 70. Therefore, I can't oh, write. Totally. I yeah. will abuse it. So I, I try to be a little more tough love with myself. But also, like one of the things that I came to realize, how many miles are in a marathon? 20, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> 21? I 25? 28? 28 feels right. I don't think it's 28. 22? 24? <laughs> Well, obviously we're not marathon runners. Let's let's say it's 25. Okay. That's wrong, that feels right. it's a, it, no, it's not right, but it's a nice easy number. Okay. Great. This is what I have come to believe. Every piece of writing is a marathon, quote unquote, because we're not using the right mileage count. But you don't get to the good stuff until like mile 20 through 25. Like the preceding miles or the brainstorms, the drafts, whatever. But the thing is, you can't get to mile 20 to 25 without running one through 19. Yeah. What that means is like, if I'm going to get to the good final draft, the only way to do it is to write the crappy preceding drafts. Right. I can't just fly in at mile 20. It doesn't work that way. So I keep that in my mind and... That also helps me. Like, it just feels so good when you nail an an essay or a sentence or a story or whatever. And I just know I can't helicopter in at mile 20. I have to run the beginning of the race to finish it. And that helps me keep going too. 
Yeah, there's a. I think it's Anne Lamont, the the shitty first drafts essay. Have you read that? I've not read it, but I've certainly heard it. Know the concept? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically what you just described, and and like it's, you know, I I kind of feel that way about most things, you know. Like I, my friend Carolina and I have this thing where we're like we like middles, like we like to like in our friendship we're in a middle. The beginning is is kind of tough, and the you know. The, it, I think in creative projects, it's kind of the same, like to slog through the beginning. But once you like get some momentum, it's like, oh, I can get in here and I can really get somewhere. And then, of course, the ending, it feels great and is a release. I guess that's a bad example in relationships, but, you know, it's... <laughs> it's relationships never end, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think there's something to part of it before even the drafts is like the thinking about it and the the processing and the journaling and the therapy and the it's quitting dieting and i feel like i'm in for for the book of essays i hope to write before i die i feel like i'm in the living phase right now where i'm just like my friend who's a comedian says you have to live a life worth commenting on so i'm just like i kind of took writing off the table because it wasn't really working and i'm like well i'm just gonna get some content for a minute (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that is 100% fair. Yeah, it feels like it isn't really my time right now and my voice. And who knows, it might never be, but maybe it will be at some point. And so I, yeah, instead of being frustrated that like nothing was working or publishing, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to stop, focus on what is working. And here we are. (laughs) Yes. I mean, everything has seasons and cycles, you know, nothing produces year round. And as you well know, the no's outnumber the yeses. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, I, I'm submitting fiction right now, you know, to, to the various places and like, woo, the no's just keep on coming. Like, it's just, I don't know. Sometimes it's not your moment. Sometimes it's just this, the wintering kind of season and other times it's spring and summer. It's all okay. Yeah. Oh, thanks for saying that. And thanks for being so encouraging, actually. Like, I don't even know if you remember this, but when I, I was taking a ton of writing classes in New York and really, you know, publishing things a couple of years ago, and I, you know, asked you about some essays I was writing and you gave me some really good advice and like told me about some editors and where you were publishing things. And I just, I always will really appreciate that. It was so kind of you. It was my absolute pleasure. And, you know, I'm always down to do that. And I don't know, like the, somebody says aim for a hundred rejections a year. I think some famous successful author. And, uh, I don't know when I think about it that way, it's sort of more fun. It's like, okay, it's just, it's a numbers game. It's just about getting it out there. And even the editors who like really like my work, they still say no, you know, cause it's not what they want in the moment or it's not quite up to par or whatever. I'm easier to hear no for sure over the last the course of writing this book. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I think sometimes I feel like a nice no, a kind no, a like almost <laughs> is almost worse to hear than just like nothing or well, maybe not. Okay, that's not true. Maybe I don't feel that way. I don't think I would like a, a that was horrible, you know. But I guess there's something to work through there where it's like it's just not a fit or it's just not right now is a little bit like okay, keep going, you know. I mean, as long as the email doesn't say thanks for saying that. 
<laughs> what a callback. Oh my God. I was thinking that too. Dude, we are so on the same page. Because I was like, there's a lot of parallels actually with dating and unrequited. Like essay writing right now is my unrequited love. It is my crush. It is my unrequited love that is not working and I have to let go for a bit. And it, But oh my God, that is so good. <laughs> I mean, for what it's worth, like I haven't written an essay since I handed this book in. <laughs> like things flow and, and they don't flow. And like, sometimes it's out of our hands. I try not to take that as an excuse to like stop working. Yeah. Because of course the work won't flow if, if you're not working. But I guess I'm just trying to say like, me too. You know, mm. I, I wrote this book and it's incredible and it's amazing. And I had so much help and I'm so thankful and very proud of it. And also like, I, if someone had told me to write an essay about myself right now, I don't even... I have no idea what I would say or how I would say it. It's like that field is needs to lie fallow for a minute. And that could be true even if I hadn't published the book, just because that's, you know, we're not appliances, we're people. Right, right, right. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I just one one to go back to the Blake line one more time. I just have yeah. to tell you this is a hard left, but it made me think when you had that like flawless callback to it. My friend Meredith is a brilliant musician and she's doing this really funny project right now where she took this is like a thing she did during the pandemic. I just feel like, you know, I feel like we have similar tastes and things. She took all of her friends like rejection text basically of like people like mainly dudes breaking up with women being like, you know, it's not you, it's me basically, you know, like yeah. I can't right now. I, but they were like long paragraphs and some of them are short. And, you know, if you were d doing it, like it might be a, thanks for saying that, but she would make a song of it. <laughs> oh. And they are so fun. They were all acoustic, but now if she's making pop songs of them, I'll send it to you on Instagram. I was just going to say, here. are they on the gram? Or... Yeah. They're hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. Just, Send me some. And another thing she could do was like rejections of essays, you know, like so close, but we just had an eating disorder essay or like, oh, not a fit right now or, you know, whatever. Like it's just, you know, again, making art of something hard and making funny art of something hard and something of your friends is like so good. I told it's her, I was like, best. yeah, I was like, it makes me feel safe in the world knowing that I can get a rejection text from someone and know you're going to like make me laugh about it when I That's send right. it to It's you. just grist for the mill. It's grist right. for the mill. And also, you know, it's good to be private. It's good to have a private sphere. It's good to not feel like you have to role play yourself for the public eye all the time. So I'm not advocating that. But it's also nice to share the things that we feel embarrassed about. Yeah. You know, it's like the sunlight is a disinfectant. And I love that. I mean, one thing I, I still would love is like a book of first drafts of poems or a page of an essay or a speech or whatever that includes like the writer talking about how they improved it, you know, and then the final yeah. draft nothing comes out fully formed, maybe for yes. a few people sometimes, but we like to just present the polished version and I totally get it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want my first draft of this book. I shredded it. Like I don't want it out in the world, but there's something to be said for, for getting to see the evidence of the work and the process and the stumbles, you know, yeah. which you just don't often see. Yeah. Yes. It's it's so true. And I that's such a good idea. I 
I felt similarly once I had like the best idea I thought was, you know, those times when you're like, this is so amazing, this idea. And they're like, no, it's not that good. Yeah, I'm usually stoned. when. I- <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but my- Oh my God, guys, I have the best idea for a food truck. Like, you I know. know. Oh, totally, dude. I can't <laughs> tell you how many food truck ideas I've had. Um, but I was saying- I wanted to write a book of essays called Unrequited about like unrequited love. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's just like most things, you know, like most content like has an essay about unrequited. Like it's such a it's so common that like to do in a book of essays collecting people's unrequited love stories are just like, I think that's just like living, you know, like it's there's heartbreak and there's bliss and then there's the in-between, you know, and that's just like it's it's the human condition for sure. Right. Right, exactly. I'm interrupting this episode briefly to tell you about my four-month membership called In Process. It starts at the middle of this month. It's Virgo season. It's time to come back to our creative process, our creative projects, and In Process is really an extension of Let It Out, the podcast you're listening to right now. It's a place to find gentle, supportive community. I bring in previous podcast guests, experts, and artists to share what they're learning and experiencing and consuming creatively in real time. And I use all of the insight I've gained from my experience of successes and failures to consult with all the members on their creative projects and on living a more aligned, creatively fulfilled everyday life, everyday existence. Creativity is messy. It can be lonely. So this is a place where we encourage cultivating creative habits and routines and come together around the ups and downs through all of it. We work through each month has a different theme. I made this positive feedback loop that I believe is my process for creativity. So the first month we focus on creating space. So clearing, beginning again, organizing. It's perfect for Virgo season here in September. And then we'll go into the next month, which is about gathering, inspiration, catching ideas, collecting. And then we try, we get messy, we make art, we show up, we do things. And then the last month is sharing, growing, allowing, reflecting, and then we do it all again. And this isn't just for creative projects. This isn't just for making a new podcast or writing an essay. This can be for your life, for your business, for your relationship. I think this process works for all of it. That's why I renamed it to In Process because I believe we are all constantly in process of becoming more ourselves. So what's actually included in this membership? What is it even? So we meet three times a month. The first is a theme call. So we call this a creative clinic where I come with a monthly discussion around our theme where I share spiritual, psychological, and emotional concepts that have been useful through the lens of creativity. And then we do a work session. So this is a virtual co-working session near the middle of each month where we do my productivity technique, which is called the Pomodoro method. And we take breaks together and then we'll do another one. I assign homework and journaling prompts during our creative clinic. And then towards the end of the month, we do an artist conversation. So this will feature a previous podcast guest, an artist, and I curate inspiring folks focused on different topics to support creativity. So you can see who the guests are. 
this time through the link that'll be in the show notes. And also you have access to the previous semesters that we've done. We've already done two semesters of this. I started this in the fall of 2020. So you have access to all of those theme calls as well as all of the artist conversations from before. And then another really great perk of the program is the community. So we have a Mighty Networks group that you'll be a part of that we're constantly sharing videos and links and quotes and accountability. And then we also create a small group system. So these are for sharing and connection and accountability in these small breakout groups to connect and check in more frequently with a smaller group of people. I would love to have you. If you want to learn more about it, feel free to send me an email. It is for writers and painters and poets and chefs and musicians and ceramicists and people who are yoga teachers or beverage lovers and anyone who wants to connect and collaborate around becoming better at being ourselves and a little bit more mindful and a little bit more present. Do you have an entire cabinet full of acne treatments and skincare products, but don't even remember what half of them do? Turns out most skincare products don't actually do much, unfortunately. The best way to treat acne is with fewer products that are clinically proven and customized for your skin. That's why I'm so excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is prescription skincare that offers science-based oral and topical medications, and they're clinically proven to help clear acne, and they're helping me so much. It's been really hard for me to navigate my skin lately and honestly over the course of my entire life and I remember my cousin telling me once when my acne was so bad when I was younger you just have to stick to one thing like you're doing so many things you just have to stick to one thing it could be this it could be that whatever but stick to one thing and lately I've been sticking to apostrophe and honestly I stopped using it for a second and my skin pretty much flipped out and I'm back and it's helped and now now I know apostrophe connects you with a board certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin we're all so different so that's why this is really important you just simply fill out apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and your medical history you snap a few selfies front side side wherever and your dermatologist creates your customized treatment plan apostrophe treats acne but they can also help you with other skincare goals like reducing redness, wrinkles, even dark spots. Not to brag, but I am dealing with all three of those. Aging, acne, all at the same time. Here we are. I'm truly, really loving the products that I have from Apostrophe. And it comes in like really chic packaging. It's so easy to use. And, you know, I'm honestly, I'm really not just saying that I To be honest, my skin was really bad. Like it got really bad the summer I was using Apostrophe and then I ran out. And anyway, I finally got it again and it's tremendously helped. So I have a really bad habit of picking my skin. I get zits and then I want them to go away and control and blah, blah, blah. And I pick them and then I get these red marks that don't seem to go away. And I'm in the sun all the time because I live in California and I love being outside and I'm always walking. And I got this really chic sunscreen that has zinc in it and it's for sensitive acne prone skin that I love so, so much, as well as this Retin-A that I use at night that also has a acid in it that I really love. And I don't know what you're going to get. You know, everyone, that's what's so great about this is that it comes with this 
postcard and stickers about your personalized prescription bottle and you don't even have to go in the pharmacy or wait in line. It's really, really tremendous. So we have a special deal for you to save $15 off of your first visit with a board certified dermatologist. Go to apostrophe.com slash let it out when you can use our code let it out. This code is only available to our listeners. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash let it out. Click begin visit, then use our code let it out at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's A P O S T R O P H E dot com slash let it out and use the code let it out to get your dermatology visit and save $15. We thank apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. Oh my God. All right. I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much. I remember our last one also being a long one. I'll just ask you a couple quick fire if you have a second. I do. I, I love a quick fire. Okay. Fire What's, away. Great. I want to know what the best thing you've eaten in the, in the last week was, but I still remember your answer to the favorite food question because okay, it's well, also the it, same as mine. I think it might be the same thing. Katie. Okay, great. <laughs> and I never remember people's answer to that question. Well, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but okay. sourdough toast with Kerrygold butter. Well, yeah, but you also had something else on top of it. Do you remember? Butter and honey. Honey! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't put honey on it this morning because I was just in like a salty, savory kind of mood. Yeah. But I'm noticing a pattern. It's toast and butter. I mean, what is better than butter? My my friends, I actually like prefer... Oh, here's a, here's a good would you rather for you. Okay. Because... Okay. Well, I won't say anything else until I ask you this. Would you rather choose between pasta and bread? I choose bread. I choose bread. And I'll tell you what my thinking was. Okay. Because you can take bread sweet or savory. Yeah. And pasta, like, I don't. I don't. It doesn't sound very good to me. Honestly, it like might be good, but yeah. It might be delicious. (laughs) Maybe for my next food truck. (laughs) I think I'm going to go with bread because you can, oh, bread, no question. I mean, you can put anything on it. You can eat it hot or cold. You can make bread pudding. Ooh. Carry it with you, like in your pocket, you can carry bread. I mean, this is. This I know. actually was not a very good. I know. I know. I know. It's so, I mean, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I will say like my friends always know that like if we're having pasta, I will inevitably be like, huh, this sauce would be good on bread. Like they're so annoyed by it because I don't really love pasta that much. And I love bread. And yes. and I just would prefer like I and, and if pasta is lightly dressed, like I mostly want the sauce, you know. So if pasta yeah. is lightly dressed, I'm just like, this is a waste of my time. <laughs> I mean, bread, you can dunk it in soup. You can dunk right. it in tea. Like, this is a no-brainer. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, same page. Um, <laughs> did you get... Oh, right. Wait, weren't you making sourdough in COVID? Did I dream that or confuse you, you with everyone that. else on the internet? No, okay. I was just trying to remember to brush my teeth at the end of the day. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I did try to make sourdough and it did not go well. <laughs> 
It's harder than it looks. I mean, from what I have been told. Yeah, it, it really, really is. What's your greatest lesson on romantic relationships? Oh, God. Okay, let me think about this one for a minute. You might have to edit some space out. <laughs> Take your time. Well, fuck. This is going to sound uh, extremely jaded. Let me think. Let me think for a second. Because I want to say this exactly how I mean it. The first thing I thought was that they aren't necessary, that I don't need one to be complete, that I never needed one to be complete. Mm, Yeah. But, you know, it's a little more nuanced than that because like there is something to be said for sex and sex in the context of a romantic attachment and the kind of romantic love, you know, that we all long for. Like, I'm not trying to knock those things, which I think are so valuable and beautiful and desirable, you know, rightfully so. But what I'm trying to say is something about having been a girl who was taught by everything I was exposed to that being in a romantic relationship was a paramount goal and had to be. That's not true. Yeah. And so I don't regret, I don't regret like getting married and having kids. I don't regret the desire to do those things. But I do wonder who I might be if I hadn't been raised to think that my life's purpose was on some level to have a quote unquote successful romantic relationship. So that's what I mean when I say they're not necessary. They're not necessary at the level that the culture tells us they are. (laughs) Like they're not as necessary as the culture says they are. And they're certainly not required to look the way the culture says they have to look. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it really does. And I think it's just just like shaded. No, not at all. I mean, it's nice to have companionship and all those other things that you said. And I think it's really important. And I, I look at like one of my parents is in a romantic partnership and one of them is not neither with each other, obviously. (laughs) And (laughs) I look at, you know, them getting older and, and I think I do want that for myself, but really digging down into why and honesty of why we prioritize that. And I think going back to like the theme of this episode, I I guess with like talking about how much, I mean, I'll be so honest, like, look at how much of this, I could talk about your book forever. And there's so many other chapters that really landed with me, but you know, we talked a lot about the relationship essay and I think that, and you chose to lead with it. And I think there is part of like, and I don't even want to call it the relationship essay. It's it's a beautiful essay that like talks about different relationships, but it is something that, you know, like we said, is, is something that we can all connect on and is sensationalized in the media. And it's almost like, I guess there is obviously not at the level of racial privilege or thin privilege for sure. But I think relationship privilege exists in in some ways as people get older. And I think to your point of like, what if being single, fulfilling yourself and not feeling like you need that need, you have that need is, is really healthy. And then the, and then it's really healthy for the relationship too, because Mm -hmm. you don't have that attachment to, you know, codependency essentially addiction. 
Yes. I mean, I, it's so bound up for me also in, in my status as a woman, because being in a romantic relationship comes with a certain amount of caretaking, you know, that, uh, my male partner does not do or feel he ever learned to do, or he, he was ever asked to, to do, you know, mm-hmm. and the time I spend taking care of him and the house and the kid, it is worth my time. You know, the time is well spent, but it's also time I'm not spending on myself for one yeah. thing. I'm at a place in my life where I, of course I value the romantic relationship that I have, but I also question how and why I came to prize the notion of being in a romantic relationship so highly. Wow. That I was oh, really great answer as usual. Oh, oh my God. I could, oh, so much I want to keep chatting with you about, but I guess the last thing I'll say, where are you with like wrestling with uncertainty and spirituality and any sort of like concepts or advice that's been comforting or helping you lately? Yes. So I can't remember if my dad had passed away already when we recorded our first conversation, but he passed away in July of 2018. And since then, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, I have thought so much more about spirituality and afterlife and God and what is God? Is there God? You know, because I wasn't raised with a set of beliefs and I don't have a set of beliefs in the sense of like a dogma or a religion. But I'm curious about those things. And, you know, I think when you contemplate mortality your own or that of the people you love, you contemplate the bigger questions, even if the where you come out is like my brother who is an atheist and just thinks, you know, when you die, you die. It's like a flower and, you know, that's it. It's lights out. Like wherever you come out on it, you still wrestle with the bigger questions. And so I have been thinking about those things so often and the pandemic and the isolation, like all of it, you know, sort of, I don't know, it it turned the fire up under those questions for me. And I have started, I guess what you could call like a practice around prayer. I mean, I've always meditated, but in a pretty secular way. So when I say prayer, I, I don't, I don't mean like the mindfulness kind of meditation that I do. I mean, more like trying to cohere and gather my energy for the sake of something outside myself and sort of direct it to whatever may or may not be listening, if that makes sense. That's what I mean by prayer. And I have discovered the only prayer that really works for me is to ask for or hope for or focus on the highest good for all involved. Mm. So that's mm. what I do because I find that if I don't like my little greedy little ego, you know, starts to talk a lot <laughs> and it's like, you know, I want this, I want that. I don't want this. Please don't please. You know, it's like, it becomes so much more about me and maybe that's just my own like spiritual immaturity. I don't know. It's just how I am in this moment. And so if I, pray or or ask for or focus on the highest good for all involved, it feels like a way to honor what I need and want without it necessarily taking center stage. There's a sort of handing over inherent in those words that is soothing to me. So that's, that's where I'm at with that these days. Oh, it's so beautiful. And yeah, 
I pray for that right now, that the highest good of everyone listening and um, yeah, co connection and belonging. And I hope that this was useful and interesting and maybe even made people laugh and see things differently. And I hope that everyone picks up your book and I'm just so grateful to know you and, and, and your art and as okay. a person. Yeah. Thanks for saying that to quote Blake <laughs> one more time. <laughs> but I really mean it. I mean it in the heart of way because I too admire and love and respect you and, and am inspired by your contributions to the world that are so soulful and wonderful and beautiful and communal. And, and I'm always down to chat with you about this that or the other i'm really thankful for the time to to talk about the book with you that's and everything so nice. else we talked about me too me too and you know it's unfortunate i guess that we have to relate on some of the things we relate about but you know, I, I was really happy to talk about it with you. And the name of this podcast, the episode is definitely going to be attributed to Blake. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll even hear it. Oh my know. gosh. Wow. Wow. Wild. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Savali. You're so wonderful. Let's um, end letting out a deep breath. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. <sighs> Thank you so much, my friend. Until we meet again. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. That was my episode with Savala. If you are still listening all the way to the end, I'm so grateful for you and I would love to connect with you more. So feel free to, if you have any questions about in process and joining the membership, I would love to have you feel free to check out the link in the show notes and then send me an email and follow let it out with three T's on Instagram. I'll be sharing who the guests for this semester are and a lot more info there this week. And in, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to do a Instagram live with someone who has been a previous guest and I'm just incredibly grateful that you're here and that you're listening. Many of the guests also come on and do Instagram takeovers. So if you liked hearing a guest, make sure you're following Let It Out because you might get to hang out with one of the guests on the Let It Out Instagram. So follow Savala on Instagram as well as Let It Out with three T's and let us know that you've stuck around all the way to the end by commenting the emoji for this week's episode which is the baguette like the really regular looking baguette we both love bread and didn't eat it for way too long and i think last time i made bread and honey the emoji but this time we'll just do bread i think there's just one bread emoji but there might be more um let us know and whatever you like to eat your bread with. So maybe it's avocado, maybe it's butter, maybe it's all of the above, um, maybe it's jam, berries. Do what you can do with the emojis and comment that on Savala's Instagram. On my Instagram, I'm at Katie Dalebow and let it out to let us know that you're listening and that this conversation impacted you in some way. I'm so grateful you're here. I would love to have you in, in process if that felt like a fit for you. I'm so grateful that you're here and I will talk to you next week with a brand new episode. And in the meantime, if you are not already on my email list and would like to be, the link to that is in the show notes as well. I send little essays and insights as well as the notes for the new episodes and you'll be alerted every time one comes out. All right. Love you. Talk to you next week. Bye.